Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Welcome back to the podcast. Did we just chat yesterday or am I imagining that? <laughs> it does seem like it was just a moment ago, doesn't it? Yeah, for those of you uh, who don't know, Vetify hosted a uh, Twitter spaces yesterday where Dave uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas and yours truly debated one of my favorite topics, which is ESG investing. And Dave, I really enjoyed that. One, one thing I do want to tell you, I love how Vetify is using these spaces for debate and learning. You're not just out there pushing the narrative. I, I see some of these Twitter spaces pop up and I feel like, it's just somebody pushing a particular narrative. You're holding these in, in an attempt to really try to help educate people and hear both sides of, of various topics out there. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, it's one of my favorite formats ever. It reminds me a little bit of podcasting in the sense that when you get some people that are used to doing this, you can really sort of dig into some stuff and, and really debate a few things. So that's how I love to use Twitter spaces. I'll keep doing those as long as people show up. Yeah, and I'll tell everybody the recording from that is out there. So if you go to Vetify uh, or ETFtrends.com, there's a, a blog that was posted yesterday evening, and within that blog, you can go listen to the uh, the whole debate. Again, it was a lot of fun. Okay, Dave, before we get into the Twitter questions that I have, yesterday afternoon, we got word that it looks like the SEC is approving these uh, leverage and inverse single stock ETF. So, for example, yep. there, there will be a 1.5 times bull and bear PayPal ETF. That's going to come from uh, Axis. Now, uh, along with this, the SEC put out a statement on single stock ETFs. And the, the statement in particular that I came across was from Commissioner Crenshaw. And I just want to read you one passage. You may have seen this. I, I tweeted this out last night, but I think it, it bears uh, ha- having me read out on the, uh, on the podcast here. So she says, because of the features of these products and their associated risks, It would likely be challenging for an investment professional to recommend such a product to a retail investor while also honoring his or her fiduciary obligations or obligations under regulation best interest. However, retail investors can and do access leverage and inverse exchange traded products through self-directed trading. While investors can gain similar upside and downside exposures to uh, inequity security through the use of options and other derivatives, Single-stock ETFs are likely to be uniquely accessible and convenient for self-directed retail investors in particular. And the, the reason why I highlight that passage, I found it um, contradictory that the SEC is approving these products. And they're, they're saying right here, or at least Commissioner Crenshaw is, financial advisors shouldn't use these. They shouldn't recommend these to their clients. But, hey, if retail investors have access yeah. to these, hey, no, no big deal. Now, I'll also, and I want to get your, your thoughts on this, I'll color that if you go read the entire statement here. Um, I, I wouldn't say Crenshaw was dissenting per se, but, you know, she's, she's taking a critical look and saying, should the SEC be doing more to protect retail investors? But at the end of the day, they approve these things. So, so well, what are your thoughts on all this? I actually think it's even worse than you think it is. So we also had... Uh, Lori Schock, who's the Director of Education and Advocacy for the SEC, put out their own statement effectively saying these are not right for every investor and these have real problems, but I guess we're approving them anyway. I mean, I'll, I'll, that's the shorthand for it. So it does feel a little bit like we're reading dissents on the Supreme Court opinion here. A hundred percent. Which is extremely unusual. I, I, I honestly, I mean, yes, we've had 
you know, people like Hester Peirce out talking about crypto and stuff uh, and, and being critical of some of the non-decisions that the SEC has made. This is the first time I can recall sort of these dissenting voices, too, that we've now highlighted from within the SEC basically saying we're approving these, but we have concerns. Uh, and that should give people a little bit of ca- pause, don't you think? A hundred percent. Let me ask you this. What kind of demand do you think these products will, will have? Because I think we're going to see well, a boatload of these things launch. Yeah, we're going to see a ton of these launch. We've got filings from AXS, Granite Shares, Direction that I can think of off the top of my head. And I think there are a few other folks in the wings. It's a bit of a horse race to see who can get the juiciest product with the cleanest ticker out first, right? Because there obviously will really only be, you know, one leveraged Netflix ETF that anybody trades, et cetera, right? So there, there's a bit of a race to the, uh, to the door here. Uh, I think we'll see there'll be a lot of activity in these, just like we have in Europe. These have been enormously successful trading on the LSE. There's a whole raft of these things launched on the LSE, uh, including a bunch of them over there that are actually just fractionalized shares. They're actually 1x exposure, but you can get say, Netflix for $4 or Berkshire Hathaway for 10 as opposed to having to pay the full share price. Uh, which that seems like a little bit much to me because we're entering a fractional share world in most brokerage accounts. Um, so there, is, I, I think we're going to see a ton of activity around them. Uh, my concern, honestly, is not that people don't understand that they're getting leveraged. They're just not going to understand how rebalance math works because this is what happens every time there's a leverage and inverse product that gets a little bit of traction. We have to go and explain to everybody again that you can't hold your inverse 3x Tesla for six months and hope that it will get you the six-month negative return times three of Tesla. That's not how they work, and that's just going to be confusing. Yeah, that's the uh, the biggest issue here is that volatility decay. I did see somebody on Twitter made a good point. I think it was uh, Tariq Dennison, who I've actually had on the podcast before. He was a little bit surprised at the uh, the, the tickers on these, and his point was that maybe there could be some confusion in the marketplace. If you have a bunch of different, say, PayPal uh, ETFs floating around, if you go look at the way those tickers are, are constructed... Oh, it's, a, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Apocalypse. I thought that it's, was a good gonna, point. I mean, I think we talked about this maybe back in March or something, Nate, when these things first, with some of the early, early filings were going in. Um, and and I, we talked about just this is going to be a ticker apocalypse. They're going to be 15 tickers to trade Netflix. And yeah, people will figure out which one the raw beta actual stock is. Um, but uh, boy, would it have been nice to have the exchanges come together and come up with some sort of naming convention for these things? Like, you know, a dot three, a dot two, a dot minus one, something like that. Uh, that made it a little more obvious because as it is, it's going to be a mess. Well, I saw the, uh, it was James Safert over at Bloomberg tweeted out that these things had been approved and I almost fell out of my chair uh, yesterday yeah. afternoon because. <laughs> You, you know my feelings on a spot Bitcoin ETF, and I understand it's not apples to apples here in terms of the underlying market, but I just, I was beside myself. I could not believe that these things were approved and we still don't have a spot I Bitcoin ETF. Now, Nate, you're forming it in your head and still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah. You wear the shirt for a week. Uh, yeah. James actually tweeted out a, uh, a picture of Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas and I with the, uh, the spot Bit- <laughs> or, and still no spot Bitcoin ETF shirts. All right. So th- that's a good uh, segue here. So, if you recall, when you last joined me, I think that was a few weeks ago, I had solicited some Twitter questions for us to answer. But then, unfortunately, I uh, proceeded to monopolize all of our time <laughs> discussing Bitcoin ETFs. And so we didn't get to all of the Twitter questions. And I wanted to make sure to come back to these because we did have some great questions that uh, that, that came in. So l- let's just go through these rapid fire, if you don't mind. Uh, I-, I wasn't planning on covering the single stock ETFs, but I think that's important. But let's try to hit, hit these as quick as we can. So 
the first one that I have for you, and I'm going to try to set this up properly. We'll see how I do. You join me back in May, right after you published one of my favorite pieces so far this year. It was titled The Ethics of Indexing Redux. And without getting all the way back down that rabbit hole, um, the, the gist of that piece was that you were trying to take a critical look at how investor flows, especially flows into passive index-based products, how those might be impacting securities prices. I would say primarily stock prices. And so the first question we have is from Eric McArdle, uh, at E. McArdle Invest. He says, ETF flows obviously impact inelastic securities, which, by the way, I think of something maybe like the ARK ETFs and what we've seen out of those over the past couple of years uh, in the smaller cap space. Uh, and then he says, increasingly larger market cap positions, which was to the piece that you wrote. But here, here was the interesting part. He also asked, he says, uh, has Dave seen any evidence of impacts on the deepest markets like treasuries via funds like TLT, IEF, et cetera? And for people who aren't familiar, TLT is the iShares 20-plus year treasury bond ETF, and uh, IEF is their 7- to 10-year version. So, so Dave, have you looked at this on the fixed income side at all, or oh, do sure. you only focus on the equity side? No, no, no. I've definitely looked at it. Um, you know, the fixed income side is a little bit more interesting. The short answer is if we just look at something objective like premiums and discounts and how wildly things might be trading off, that gives us a nice way to look at the impact of sort of momentary flow versus those underlying markets, right? Because obviously, if everybody wants to sell the ETF, it's going to trade at a discount until there's enough of a spread versus the underlying that it drags the underlying down with you, if you will. You can think about it in both directions, of course. And yeah, we've seen over the course of this year a little bit more premium discount activity than we'd expect in some of the fixed income products. Um, HYG, for instance, has traded as much as down a percent and a quarter, up a percent and a quarter premium discount. Um, we've seen TLT uh, trade, you know, maybe 30, 40 basis points off of quote unquote fair value. Um, so, you know, two ends of the spectrum there, the most liquid bond market, a, a less liquid bond market, I wouldn't say the least, but certainly one of the less liquid bond markets tracked by ETFs. Honestly, things seem to be working okay there um, in terms of the short-term aspect. In terms of the long-term flow aspect, um, yeah, you know, I think you can apply that same math around the flow impact on pricing to effectively any asset class, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. just sort of how money pressure works. So when we look at bonds being bid up and relentless flow into the fixed income market, yes, you have to assume that there's a similar kind of multiplier effect in there. Now, the academic research I was referencing in some of those papers um, didn't dig into specific, say, on-the-run bonds or something like that. Um, however, there's some golden work from five or six years ago that does look at um, so it's sort of the index inclusion and applied flow in bonds. And you absolutely do get sort of an elevated price effect on those bonds. It's such an interesting topic. I mean, I, I just think back to our Twitter spaces debate yesterday where you were making the point that it flows into to ESG funds overall. You know, there's sort of this momentum effect. And maybe that's a reason to be invested in uh, ESG overall. But let, let me ask you this, just going back to the shorter term, you, you mentioned the uh, the discounts that we've seen in some bond ETFs. And Look, it's been a very challenging year for bonds overall. I think everyone knows we're start to a year in history for the uh, the ag. And and so you look at some of the ETFs, you mentioned HYG. I show that that was trading at its steepest discount since March of 2020. And I, I should have checked this morning to see where it's at now. But do, do you feel like bond ETFs have handled everything uh, okay this year? And what's been a historically bad year yeah, for the bond market? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, if you pull up like a premium discount chart on, on any of these things, yeah, if you go back to March 2020, we saw some pretty big disconnects there, you know, four or five, in some cases, 10% intraday uh, where we had the junk bond market shut down. But you look at that chart and you can understand why. <laughs> we also had some rather dramatic price movements in March of 2020 as well. So that all makes sense. If we look really over the course of this year so far, it's been a little volatile, but it's not like particularly worse than, say, 2018. And we don't write papers about 2018 being a crazy year in the bond market necessarily. So uh, to me, it feels like the bond market has really held up quite well, especially when you can say in terms of in terms of trading and structure. Um, it, uh, obviously, the you know enormous impacts we're seeing uh, from the Fed activity, that's going to perturb the markets much more than any sort of intraday flow allocation from an ETF investor. All right. Another question that we received, and, and by the way, this could be literally an entire hour-long show. So what I'm asking for here, Dave, is just your real high-level thoughts, your initial You're thoughts. You're asking me to be short, Dave. Very, <laughs> very short. So uh, this comes from Ryan Kristapowicz, uh, at Ryan K ETF Models. And he's asking about the implications of the SEC uh, potentially making changes to the investment advisor rules. And he's curious how that might impact SMAs and model portfolio providers. And let me just add a little bit of color here for people who aren't familiar with this. This is a meaty topic, but I think it's an important one. So the SEC is contemplating whether uh, index providers and model portfolio providers, whether they should be regulated as investment advisors. Right now, they're not. And just anecdotally, I can tell you, even on this podcast, when I have someone on who is only speaking to an index and not the ETF itself, they can talk about whatever, uh, other than actually saying the ETF ticker and name, but they can cover everything, performance or, or whatever, in a lot more detail. Whereas if they're actually an ETF sponsor or an advisor, they're much more constrained in what they can say. And that's just one example. But but Dave, just any high-level thoughts on this 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 topic, which yeah, I'm sure so, you'll be digging so into. So very briefly, I think it was June 20th, they put out a request for comments looking at index providers, model portfolio providers, and also pricing services, which means the entire bond market gets scooped up into this as well. Um, and they're not proposing any rules. They're asking 40 probing questions about the nature of these businesses and how much interaction they have. I actually don't think this is going to go anywhere all that quickly. Um, there are very, very thorny issues with taking, say, you know, BlackRock and all of a sudden saying that they are uh, an investment advisor to the individuals invested in every fund underneath, uh, uh, sorry, not BlackRock, but like an S&P or an mm -hmm. MSCI, an index provider, I guess, Vetify, uh, that, that we would then be caught up under this umbrella where we have direct sort of almost fiduciary, although not technically, uh, responsibility for each individual investor in a product based on something that we licensed. There's so many gaps in that process. I mean, you start with the fact that Running an index fund is not mechanical, and mechan and index product issuers, a BlackRock, for instance, make a lot of decisions about implementation that the index providers have no knowledge of or input on. Um, and how you tease apart what is the discretionary part of running the fund versus what is the index provider making a decision to include X versus Y is really fraught. Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I could give you a two-hour version of this answer, but short-term, I don't think there's anything to worry about in the next year or two. It's not even rulemaking yet. 
Um, I would suspect probably early next year we might start getting some some proposed rules. Um, I'm I'm all for sort of clear disclosures, disclosed methodologies. I think there's room for a few rules around the edges here, but swooping this entire part of the industry under this 1940 provision. Uh, it's just got so many unintended consequences. I'm just praying it goes away. Well, we'll be covering this in depth as, as you know the year goes along. But I want to read you once again, going back to SEC Commissioner Crenshaw. So on this topic and, and why the SEC is looking into it, she said, quote, ultimately, what index providers choose to include or not include in their index often determines what securities go into a fund and how investors perceive manager or fund performance. Model portfolio providers similarly may exercise significant discretion in creating investment models for their users, making adjustments to those models, reconstituting or rebalancing their portfolios, and by providing varying degrees of customization. So you can see they're, they're trying to find the line there in terms of, you know, what does constitute investment advice. I just think right. this is going to be fascinating to, uh, to track moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, they, they're really, they're, I, this strikes me as overreach, right? This is pretty subtle law, right? This is basically the whole issue of newsletter writers um, touting individual stocks. That's how we got the regulatory regime we're in now is an SEC case, which basically said, look, this guy may be a criminal, but he's allowed to say what he wants to say. That was literally the, the, the low case that they had to decide on this. So I, it seems really unlikely we're going to unwind all of that. All right, Dave, two minutes left. I have a question of my own for you, and I think you'll like this one, uh, given what we've seen play out in the equity markets this year. I'm really curious as to your thoughts on tail hedging ETF. So something like Cambria's uh, tail risk ETF, which has a 10 out of 10 ticker symbol, by the way, tail. Uh, but have you looked at these at all? The performance yeah, is a little uh, yeah. surprising. It's- Some of them have been really shown their stripes and some haven't. I will say all of them seem to be doing what they said they were going to do. It's just how well it's worked out in the current environment. Because remember, we're in more than a normal bear market. We're in a bear market possibly heading into a recession in a radically rising interest rate environment with high inflation. That's that's not what these products were necessarily targeted for. (laughs) They were targeted to help you manage downside equity risk. Um, of the ones out there, the one that I would highlight as really surprisingly great would be BTAL, B-T-A-L, which is the AGFIQ U.S. Market Neutral Anti-Beta Fund. Um, this is one of those slightly complicated products that it, it doesn't just short the market. It shorts high beta stocks and goes long low beta stocks. So you stay invested to a certain extent. Uh, this thing is up 19.5% so far this year in a, in a year where the market is down 18.5%. That's called bats tail risk, <laughs> right? That thing has absolutely crushed it. You mentioned this product, TAIL. Um, that thing's about flat on the year, which is great. That means it's you know up about 17% over the market. So that's great. If you go through the longer sort of laundry list of funds out there, the Newsy, HEGD, SPD, um, They've all done a little bit. They've all helped you some, but they haven't quite delivered the way I think many people were expecting. BTAL really has shown it, in my opinion, it's sort of head and shoulders above everybody else for this market, for this market where the high beta stocks are the ones that got crushed and the lower beta stocks actually managed to hang on. Well, Dave, always uh, so much fun. We, We never have a shortage of things to talk about, but nobody does this better than you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Nate. See you next time. That was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify.